Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. I invite you to join me in Ephesians chapter 5. One of the things that you have to say yes to when you become a pastor is to... uh, Present the whole counsel and not just your favorite spots or the easy parts or the, the arguments to prove your point, but the whole counsel of the Word of God. And sometimes they're, sometimes they're easy and sometimes they're not easy. Ephesians is my very favorite book, I think, in, in the Bible. It's so practical when you drill down and, and see the context by which Paul is referring to. So today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, but I'm going to spend a whole lot of time in the origin story of Ephesians chapter 5. And so uh, we're going to turn over to Genesis chapter chapter 1. It's the origin of every story, in fact. While you turn there, I want to quickly say, really glad that you're here this morning. I hope that we've been able to sense the presence of the Lord already, and that we are aware of the Holy Spirit uh, moving. And uh, my prayer is that He will use the message today from His Word to impact our lives and our thinking. If uh, this is your first Sunday here at Connect Church, I want to say a very special welcome. Glad that you're here. I'd uh, love to have the opportunity to, to say hello and, uh, and maybe even give you my contact information if you have any questions about. Our church, what we believe, you know, our fit in your life and your fit in ours. Uh, I'd love to have that conversation, and so I'll be I'll be right down here as soon as service is over. Uh, if you would, uh, if you would like to uh, to to begin that process, and uh, and I know that the Lord is going to bless uh, your time here today. That's that's been my prayer, and I know that He will accomplish it. So Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. And if you've been here very many times, you know that when I started in Genesis chapter 1, you should have brought lunch. <laughs> That's not really altogether true. I mean, it is true, but it's not funny. <laughs> All right, anyway. So uh, when, we, when we turn over to Genesis chapter 1, we find that God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit working in communion together... Uh, have uh, have begun the work of creation. And I believe that Scripture is pretty clear that it was the Father's will, that the Son is the one who created all things, according to John chapter 1 and then also in Colossians chapter 1. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives everything life. That is a common pattern throughout all of Scripture. The Father's will, the Son's creation, the Spirit gives it life. That's the same not only in the physical world that we live in, it's also true of the spiritual world that we live in. When we say yes to the work of Jesus Christ, and uh, we are indwelt then in that moment with the Holy Spirit of God, and we become a living being, and we uh, experience spiritual resurrection. And so that is what is at work in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2. And I'm going to go into a little bit of detail about the specific theme of Ephesians chapter 5, verse, beginning in verse 22. So in this 
origin story of humanity, God is having conversations and expectations that he brought commandments to Adam prior to Eve's creation. And remember, Adam did not create Eve. God created Eve out of Adam. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 through 31, you will see there, there's, there's two things at work. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 through 31, this is God's overall command to mankind. What, what God told Adam would apply to all men. Adam becomes the chief steward of all truths that God empowered him with. Then in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, you will find that God gives the commands to Adam alone. These are not two different occurrences, even though they're in two different chapters. Chapter 1 gives us a very broad overview. Chapter 2 gives us a focused view of Adam's creation, Adam and Eve's creation themselves. So in Genesis chapter 1, you get a, a pretty holistic view of all of creation. Genesis chapter 2 really kind of drills down into Adam. So it, it tells the complete story and then goes back and gives detail to a more concise section of that story, specifically Adam and Eve. And the reason that that is important is because we find that all of the commandments that God gave mankind, he gave to Adam alone prior to Eve. So in Genesis chapter 1, it seems as if God in chronology is speaking to all mankind, but you find out that God is actually giving these directives to Adam prior to Eve's creation. Okay, it's very important because in Genesis chapter 1, when God is actually speaking to the Trinity, in my opinion, he is, he is saying, let us make man in our image and let him have dominion and let him subdue it and let him. So this conversation is happening in the heavenlies among himself, and yet the expectation is going to be on that which he creates. That's very important because although God doesn't necessarily explicitly say this to Adam, we know it implicitly because we have learned the mind of God as it is given to us before Adam. Just hold on. It's not all going to be like this, okay? Then Adam also is given the knowledge of the tree of life prior to Eve's creation. God told him, you can eat of any tree and of the fruit of the tree of any in the garden except that one. Don't eat that fruit. Now, I'm not going to get into the origins of evil and, you know, did God set Adam up to fail? That's, that's for a, a personal conversation, not, not for here. Although, if you would like to have that conversation, I, I would also love to have it. But not only did, is God setting Adam up to be the uh, uh, primary leader of all of creation, he's also giving him knowledge of the tree of life, which sets him up to be the steward of right and wrong, of morality, of obedience or disobedience. He also, in the very next verse, in verse 16 of chapter 2, he told him that if you do eat of it, you will surely die. So it was Adam that God gave the, the consequences he gave him the risk. He called him to be the protector. Finally, he also said in the very next verse, in verse 18, it's not good for man to be alone. So he brings him to a place that he recognizes his need for help to be obedient. 
So God created Adam very good. In fact, if you go to chapter 1 on day 6, he creates all the land animals, and then he creates Adam and Eve, and he says it's very good. Genesis chapter 2, prior to Eve's creation, it wasn't very good. Remember what God just said. He looked at Adam alone and said, oh, it's not good for man to be alone. After he put Adam into sleep, after he created the help meet Eve, that's in Genesis chapter 1, at the conclusion of all things, he said, now it's very good. It's very important to see the chronology of events here because it does get into the theology and the practicality of our everyday relationships. That's what Paul is trying to reteach in Ephesians is because they had lost all purpose and all motivation for, for having uh, relationships flowing out of the grace of God, which is what Adam had. So God called Adam as the firstborn to be the leader, to be the steward, to be the protector, and to be the relator, the relationship factor, the friend. Ultimately, these were Adam's responsibilities. So, Chapter 1 is the broad story. Chapter 2 is in more detail. Now, in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, it says, this is after sin, that Adam called her Eve. So even there, I believe from God's perspective, and the reason that we know that is from the very beginning, God called him Adam, groundling. God uh, allowed Adam to name her. His responsibility was to name all of creation including his wife. So from the very beginning, there was an order established by God for certain things. In fact, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You see that same pattern, and then you can look at what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy as the pastor, the exact same pattern. The woman was the helper. Adam was the lead. And from then on, not just Adam and Eve, they were not just symbols. From then on, the husband is to be the lead and the wife is to be the help. Now, let me stop for a moment and let me, I'm going to clarify that statement for the next, as long as that takes. All right? Because there's some things that I believe our society is trying to say that's just not in Scripture at all. So what, what God is establishing and what Paul continues is that the work of the male-female relationship is that the female complements not the secondary. Her time of creation does not imply her value in the relationship. That is very important. Scripture never one time says that because she was second, she was lesser. Not once. In fact, it, it many times speaks to the very opposite of that. She is the supplement to Adam, not the subservient to Adam. So you start seeing the, the phraseology throughout the creation story that when God made, it wasn't until God made Eve that creation was very good. In fact, it wasn't until after Eve's creation that it says God made man in his image. That means the broad term man. And it says after the image of God, he made them. So the woman is made in the expressed image of God, just like the man is an expressed image of God. In fact, when God gave Adam all of the responsibilities of creation, 
He recognized Adam can't fulfill. Adam can't do it alone. It wasn't that just Adam was lonely. It was that Adam couldn't do it by himself. He needed someone to come alongside him to become one flesh with him to do the things that Adam couldn't do alone. And that was very good. So when we talk about gender issues, we're not talking about leadership in the term of dominion. We're talking about God gave Adam responsibilities that glorify God. Adam alone could not do it. And so God gave Adam a helper. That doesn't mean a helper to Adam alone. It means that Adam couldn't carry the load. He needed someone to help him carry the load. And when they came together, together they were able to walk in obedience to what God had called them to do. This is very important. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, the part we wish that we could blur out, but we can't, something happens in Genesis 3 which turns everything upside down. And, and it's important to understand their responsibilities and to whom they are given for this to really make a full impact on us. Adam releases all of his positions of leadership, his position of responsibility, and he lets... Eve, eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then it says, and he ate. She offered it to him, uh, and he ate as well. In this verse 6, it says, and Adam with her. Now, again, the reason this is important is because the responsibilities of leader, steward, mentor, friend, these were all given to Adam to impart to Eve. Adam failed miserably. So for him to be obedient, she would have to be obedient. But Adam didn't lead well. Adam failed on day one because he did not, he did not lead spiritually the one to which God gave him. And as a result, she ate of the fruit. Did she know the consequences? I doubt it. I don't think she would have eaten it in, in, if that were the case. Here's what I do know. Adam was with her when she ate, and he didn't smack it out of her hand. Now, I don't know why Adam ate. Adam knew, don't eat of this tree. Adam knew, you shall surely die. I don't know what the motivation for Adam is, but here's what he forgot. He forgot the word of the Lord. He forgot his responsibility. And whether it was guilt or whether it was shame or whether it was neglect, whatever the case may be, Adam rebelled against God. Eve was tricked. Eve didn't know the consequences. Adam did and withheld them from her. Now, I think this is very important because before Eve sinned, Adam had already sinned. Adam didn't sin right out of the gate, the sin of eating the fruit. Adam sinned by a sin of omission. Eve sinned by a sin of, or uh, Eve sinned with a sin of omission in that she didn't do what God had asked her to do, although she didn't know it. So Adam didn't do prior what God had called him to do. Eve sinned without knowing it. And there's a big difference. And when you get over into the New Testament, what Paul and what Peter later says 
is that that's why the sin nature passes from the male, not the female. This then begins to be very important as to why we value the virgin birth. Because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not a man. And so he, or Mary was able to carry him, and Jesus did not have the sin nature. Because it's carried through the man. Because it was the man who rebelled in the garden. Eve was tricked. Eve, sin of commission. Adam, I think I said that wrong earlier. Adam, sin, the sin of omission. Now, it's before her sin. So Eve sinned because Adam had already sinned. Eve was tricked. Adam rebelled. And his rebellion came as a result of his omission. Now, these are very, very important first step understanding in why all of this in Ephesians chapter 5 matters. Now, according to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, God created men and women in his own image. Spiritually, then, they are equals. Physically and emotionally, there is just as much difference in them today as there was then. But the spiritual aspect is what we're going to talk about today. So God created men and women as equals, but not the same. They don't have the same, they're not same, it's not sameness, but it is definitely equality. And scripture teaches it all the way through. But it is God's work, it is God's expectations and God's commands. So what God asked man to do, he gave Eve to Adam in order to accomplish that. Okay, so it's so important to get this. But when Adam made his existence about himself, not only did he fail himself, he failed Eve as well and the rest of us. Now, the same implication is true for us once we come into our faith. When you begin to make your life about you, you're going to spiral out of control. You're going to forget the reason that you exist. And you're going to make choices and compromises that God never intended for us to make. That's exactly the thing that caught Adam off sides. Notice that it's not that the man was created in the image of God and the female was also created in the image of God. God doesn't say that until after they were together. Okay. So God gave the blessing of very good to both of them together in harmony. Now, before men get the big head, collectively, together, and created in the image of God. Now, while initially the text does say that God created man in his own image, it goes on to clarify that God created them in his own image. So, same value, different roles. After Adam and Eve sinned, God showed up as he always seems to do after we sin. When he showed up, he called out a name, Adam. Why did he call Adam? Adam was the responsible party. Adam was to be the leader. Adam was to be the steward. Adam was to be the mentor. Adam was to be the protector. Adam, where are you? Does God know where Adam is? Of course he does. It's not important that God doesn't know where Adam is. It's important for Adam to know where Adam is and for Adam to recognize that he's hiding after sin, which is what we typically do as well. 
So God finds them and questions Adam in Genesis 3. He tells them what the consequences are going to be. He'd already told them, you shall surely die. But when they ate of the tree, they didn't surely die physically, but they did die spiritually. In that day, the clock began on winding down time for them. Now, I'm not going there's so much in here. I don't have time to go into all of it, and I really wish that I did, but, but we just don't have time uh, for that. So we find that this is a spiritual death, and the part of them that is in God's expressed image is dead. It needs a resurrection. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promises that that resurrection will take place. He is going to send through the woman's seed someone who will crush the serpent, the trickster's head. So the woman's seed, again, doesn't carry the sin nature because she was tricked. Man's seed does carry the sin nature because he rebelled. Now, if you go over to, uh, to Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, when it talks about Adam and Eve beginning to have children, it already talks about Cain and Abel. But when it gets to verse 3 and it talks about Seth, it says very, very clearly that Seth was created after Adam's likeness after Adam's image. Which means that that part of us that is created in the image of God is cut off until there is spiritual resurrection. And then we are, again, uh, brought into, his, into God's family. But today it's Genesis chapter uh, 3 verse 16 that I want to pay attention to. And some of you may have heard me talk about this before, but it's so important. And I think sometimes it gets, it gets overlooked. So God is giving Adam, you are always going to work. Now you're going to sweat. You are always going to work with your hands. Now there's going to be thorns. There was all, there, now there are different consequences because of his rebellion. And likewise to Eve, because you were tricked and you weren't, you weren't listening well enough, there's consequences here as well. Now you're not only going to give birth, Earth, it's going to be painful. But verse 16 says, at the, very, at the last part of verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, this is very important because in English, that doesn't seem to be much of a curse. Well, at least for the men. Because there is not a man in the room that would say that a wife's desire for her husband's a bad thing. Every man would say, yeah, that's, that's actually a blessing. That's not a, that's not a curse. But that's not what the word actually means. What the word means here, the desire, it means a stretching out after. So it could be like if you have a desire for something, like if there's a hot fudge cake and I desire it, I'm going to stretch out after it. But in the context, this is spiritual consequences, right? So in the context is what God is saying to Eve is your desire, the thing you want to reach out for is the spiritual authority of the home. But you can't have it. Adam, and Adam alone has it. And when it says he will rule over you, it doesn't mean with dominion. It just simply means that he has the authority. So even though Adam failed colossally, God did not take the responsibility away. He still has the spiritual authority under the Lord and can't possibly attain that without the complement of his, of his wife in terms of a, of a marriage. So this is re, in regard to the spiritual uh, consequences or expectations. So God tells Eve that she's going to want spiritual authority. And this is, a, you know, this is a, in broad speech, okay? So just continue to be patient for just a few moments. So 
God establishes here, whether it's because of Adam's failure or her inability to trust him now, who knows what it is, but she tells, he tells Eve that Eve is going to want spiritual authority, but she can't have it. She's going to feel entitled to it, but she cannot have it. But Adam, you do have it. So it's the thing that Adam has and does it want, and it's the thing that Eve wants and cannot have. And I think for 6,000 years, that's been a curse to all humanity. That for most relationships, when you think about the spiritual one in the relationship, it's typically, typically the wife who is saying, we should pray together. Let's read the Bible together. Let's study together. We should pray with the kids together. We're going to church tomorrow. All of these things are typically the wife pushing the husband who says, sure, whatever you want to do, we'll do that. He's happy to let her pray with the kids at night or to read Bible stories at night. But this is all a product of us not fulfilling the responsibility. And it's incredibly important for us to realize that just because your relationship's okay with it, God hasn't changed his expectations of it. The husband is to be the spiritual leader, and the wife is to help him fulfill that. And we begin to see the pattern. And I'm going to tell you, this has been the primary breakdown in the home for 6,000 years It's the reason that we've gotten to the place that we're in. Now, it eventually leads to a perversion, either abandonment by the husband or abuse by the husband. He's either absent or he's abusive. That's the way it works if we're not doing what God called us to do. There is a teeter-totter either way in that situation. But that's not what God has called us for. It leads to superiority, either on the side of the men or on the side of the woman. But both are a product of sin. And it's proof that we still live in it. A fight for sameness. I mean, I can go back. I mean, I love to study history, but I'm telling you, anytime that there's a fight for sameness, not equality, sameness, it's always a fight for superiority. Sameness is never the goal. Domination is the goal from either gender, by the way. But it's not how God establishes it. It's not what God's initial grace does with Adam and Eve. He shows us the error. And we're continuing to learn from our mistakes. A fight for dominion is bound for destruction. So God created man and woman to accomplish his plan for himself. And often we find the result of that or the culmination of that in marriage, where men carry the responsibility, but it cannot be fulfilled without help, equal help. Not men having a job and women helping the man do everything that he wants done. This only works when the man is trying to accomplish God's glory and God's best for their role in this life. Man obeying the voice of God, but needing the ministry of the woman in order to be able to complete it. That's when we begin to see the image of God. That is when we begin to see the two shall become one flesh. And it's in the fulfillment of that that our relationships begin to make sense and they begin to bring peace and they become very good. Now, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 
The reason that I bring up the origin story is because Ephesians is written to a very new church in a very pagan context. And so for them to understand God's desire for marriage and relationships, they have no clue at all. This is a male-dominated society where men can do whatever they want and women cannot. And so Paul has spent lots of ink talking about the gifts of Jesus Christ and the grace that is available and all of the blessings that belong to those who claim him, to those who have experienced the spiritual resurrection. This is who you are. Jesus Christ is the new Adam, and now you are in him and he is in you. You have every tool you need to be obedient just like Adam did. Don't drop the ball. But you're going to also need some help. And so what Paul is doing is he's reestablishing what God established to Adam and Eve, and the Jews had known for a long time, though they had not honored it. But the Gentiles hadn't heard this mystery just yet. The purpose of marriage is not to find fulfillment in one another. It's not just to simply find the compliment for my life. It's not to find happiness and satisfaction. So for all of those who say, in my marriage, I'm not just happy, you probably need to try Jesus. He is where you'll find satisfaction. He is where you'll find contentment. He is where you will find meaning and purpose and joy and happiness and holiness. He is where you'll find purpose. And until you find Jesus, you couldn't finally possibly find happiness in relationship. That's why we need the grace of God. And our spirits need resurrection in us, saying yes to Jesus to be able to understand what the role is that God has called us to accomplish. Verse 22. Is that introduction enough? I think I've, I've stalled for as long as I can stall. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, before we get crazy here, we need to go back and read the previous verse. It is incredibly important. In verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Submitting to one another out of reference for Christ. That's hippotasso. It means to place yourself under. In verse 21, Paul tells every member of the church to place themselves under the authority of everyone else in church. We belong to each other. How can we serve each other? How can we look out for each other? How can we complement each other in our ministries and our place in Christ? Verse 22, wives. Be subject to. That word is idios. It's an adjective, but it describes the submission of the previous verse. So we are to place ourselves under the authority of each other. Verse 21 is the place where we're living out the full grace of God in relationships with brothers and sisters. We're speaking to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and we're making melody in our hearts to one another, and we're speaking thanksgiving to one another and thanking God for what he's, how he's put us together, and then he shifts from the church family to home. And the first is to the wife saying, That submission that you give to each other, make sure you give that to your husbands first, personally. Now, spiritually, that's found in the church relationships. But this word is very interesting. The context is to place herself, her personal self, 
under the spiritual care and physical care of her husband. Now, listen, before you get, and I don't think that we will, but before we get bent out of shape on this, it's very important for us to understand we're still talking about equality. We're not talking about subservient roles. We're not talking about dominion. We're talking about, we're talking about what it looks like to live in the grace that God has called us to live in. This isn't a kick in the teeth, but to the Ephesians, whose, who every man's wife or every wife in town was having to place herself under the authority of every other man in town. It was a role. I don't just mean physically. I'm talking about in every way. They were nothing. They were property. They were equipment. They were employees. Men were not faithful to their wives. A wife was someone who took care of the things that the man didn't want to take care of. And I'm not being ugly. I'm just saying Christianity does not keep women in a subservient role. I'm tired of hearing that. Christianity sets them free. Only to your husbands, ladies. Don't let anybody tell you that you're lesser than them. Because when you get home to that husband who loves you unconditionally like Christ loved the church, that's a place that it's easy to serve. So you know what? Don't live like you used to live. The grace of God sets you free. Isn't it? it changes everything. So this idea of you know, wife submit, it's garbage. It's of hell. It's not of heaven. So to your own husbands. Paul is also teaching men indirectly that men, you ain't got no authority over women. This isn't male-female competition. You need to make sure that you're taking care of yourself at home, and you need to make sure that you're loving your wife unconditionally, but all of those other women, they don't belong to you. You need to make sure that you're responsible for the one that you've become one flesh with. So let's continue. Very important for the rest of the verse, to your own husband. Because marriage is a, spe a special picture. It's, it's a mystery. It's not, it's not natural to understand the purpose of marriage unless you understand it very, very selfishly. He goes on in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as, as a symbol, as a pattern, that Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, there's the pattern, so also wives should submit. That's where the word back from verse 21, hippotasso, in everything to their husbands. And, and, and again, I know how that sounds. It sounds like, oh man, that just... When you talk about equality, but then you throw in this subservient role, I'm sure when women were even hearing this in the first century, they were saying, that just doesn't sound great. Especially if you knew who I was married to. So, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. No, I love her. No, no, no. Love her as Christ loved the church. Well, I love her unconditionally. No, no, no. He laid himself down for her. He gave himself up for her. 
That for the purpose of sanctifying her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, we see the picture of spiritual authority. Fellas, if you don't like the way your wife treats you, you might need to look in the mirror. Verse 28, in the same way as Jesus Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So you love your wife unconditionally, sacrificially, like Christ loved the church. Here's another one. If you don't know how Christ loved the church, just love her like yourself. (laughs) Most men understand that. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32 said, this mystery is profound. We have not been able to understand the purpose of marriage is to demonstrate the unconditional love of Jesus Christ with the church and the church's ability to revere Christ even if they might not understand him. This is a mystery and the only way the world can see the picture of Christ and his church is, well, look at Christian marriages world. Look at Christian marriages and you'll see the kind of love that Jesus loves for the church. And I think we would look at that and say, what in the world? I don't want the world to base how God loves off my relationship. Well, then it's time for us to repent. Because that was the whole purpose of marriage to begin with. Our marriage could quite possibly be the greatest demonstration of discipleship and evangelism tool that God ever gave us. This is why in Malachi chapter 3, God says, I hate divorce. Why? Because divorce does such a damage to unconditional love, sacrifice, and reverence to each other. It mars the image of Christ and his church. And, and I know some may say, well, but my husband's not a Christian. I, I know, and this is why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says the exact same things. If your husband is an unbeliever, wives, submit to your husbands, that by watching your submission, you might, you might win him to Christ. So whether, you know, this is not a perfect world, and I'm going to talk just for a second about this crazy cycle that happens. Where, and I do a lot of, you know, reading and and understanding and try to understand the culture, but I, I know, and I'm married, and I know that there is this cycle that happens. Well, when I feel respected, I'll love you. And she says, well, when you love me, I'll respect you. And it starts this wonky cycle that has no end. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse to where we can convince ourselves, you know what? I don't think I've ever loved you. Oh, come on. It's not true. In fact, you're commanded to love, so you don't get to feel it. I tell couples this all the time. We are commanded to love the one we're married, and and since we're commanded, you could love anybody. So since you could love anybody, you should find somebody that's easy for you to love, somebody that you want to be able to love. All of this matters. I think this is why so many relationships cycle out of control. He doesn't know the way to love her, and she doesn't know the way to respect him. So that's why we get all the way down to the end of chapter 5, verse 33. And it says, 
However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. This is a summation. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. That word respects is actually the word phobos where we get our word phobia or fear. But in this context, it doesn't mean fear. It actually means reverence or respect is a good translation. So the husband needs respect in a relationship and the wife needs sacrificial love. Let me tell you something. Generally speaking, it's a whole lot easier to love someone unconditionally when, they know, when you know they respect you. And it is a whole lot easier to respect someone when you know that they unconditionally love. And that's the picture of grace in the relationship. That's what God is trying to do. But this, this, this perversion of this and doing it our, our own way, this is why gender confusion exists. This is why gender roles are attacked. This is why marriage is archaic. This is why the sexual revolution pops up. This is why the my body, my choice exists is because Satan is attacking the image of God revealed to the world, which is marriage. And we need to stop falling for his tricks. We need to stop making marriage about us and recognize that marriage is about his glory. Marriage only exists from his grace anyway. So maybe we need to recommit to the body here, to love more unconditionally, to serve each other freely, to understand what it means to place ourselves under one another's authority. Maybe you need to recommit to waiting until you find the person that God chooses for you. For those of you who are not married, I know you're sitting there, you're saying, what's this got to do with me? I don't even know if I want to get married. Well, I don't know if you want to get married either. That's a whole other issue. Does it, you know, does it nullify your purpose in this life at all? But if you do, it's very important to understand what that covenant relationship is supposed to look like. Don't settle. He won't change. Find somebody that can lead you now. Somebody that is in love with Jesus first. So, ladies, make sure you understand your role and the value that you play. And men, make sure you understand yours and lead selflessly. Maybe this morning you need to recommit to your marriage. Maybe you've not even said it with words, but in your heart, in your spirit, you feel like maybe your commitment isn't where it once was, or at least your heart's not. Your commitment may be dead, you know, deadlined. It may be really, really great. Uh, but your emotions aren't lined up. Maybe today you need to just take a moment and recommit that relationship to the Lord. Maybe your marriage isn't producing one flesh results. It's not providing a picture of unconditional love. Maybe you need to have a conversation with your spouse. And if, if, if this sermon can provoke that conversation and get some things off the table and say, hey, let's, let's talk about this. Where are we in our relationship? How can we serve? How can our marriage serve each other and serve the world around us? Then take this as an opportunity. This is what we want. And it's not possible without his grace and his grace being revealed. And it's really great for us to talk about all the blessings that his grace is up to this moment until it starts affecting our everyday relationships. Oh, I, we, we love his grace that gives us our best life. But what about his grace 
that holds us accountable for living in His purpose. If we're truly living in His grace, these kinds of relationships, it's a byproduct. This isn't just commands. This is a litmus test to see if you are already living out the grace of God in your life. This isn't, this isn't Paul saying, you'd better, you'd better, you'd better. This is Paul saying, here's how you'll know. Here's how you know if you're living out the grace of Jesus Christ. In yourself, with Him, and with those that are closest to you. So look around at your closest relationships. Grace reminds us of who we belong to, reminds us of our purpose, reminds us of our identity, and that's very important to remember who we are, who we belong to, the reason that we exist. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we love talking about spiritual things. We love reminding ourselves of all the blessings and we love being joint heirs with Jesus and we love forgiveness and we love freedom and we love all of those things that we've been talking about now for weeks and weeks. We love to sing and we love to smile and shake hands. But that same grace that causes us to be selfless, obedient, that causes us to be thoughtful, considerate, that helps us to to bear loads together, to yoke ourselves together. It causes us to respect and to love unconditionally. Lord, we need a special kind of grace for that. And I pray that at least the love that we share in this room as brothers and sisters, I pray that it would create a holy curiosity for the world around us. But I pray as the world gets closer and closer into our relationships, they would continue to see more and more of your grace, not less of it. And I pray a special blessing today on those that are married. Lord, I pray that their commitment to each other flows from a commitment to you. I pray that their love and respect for one another flows out of their love and respect for you. But it all falls apart if not. And so, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us by your grace. You've already made the promises. So I pray that, that we would lay hold of them. Lord, I pray a special blessing over those that are not married. I pray that you'd give them wisdom, guidance, and direction. I pray that in the meantime, and, and if, if at all, I just pray, Lord, a special grace as they pursue your heart. I pray for a special grace as they, as they bear the load of responsibility to glorify you with everything they are. I pray that the church would come alongside. I pray that you, you, you would come alongside as you promised to do. And uh, Lord, I just want all of us. It's one thing to read the pages off a page. It's another thing to demonstrate the truths in everyday relationships. So help us, Lord. We need your help. The world is desperate for examples of unconditional love and respect. So help us to lead well. Help us to help well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me, please?
this morning, if you need maybe to repent, I think, honestly, knowing marriage the way I do, I don't think any of us couldn't stand for a little repentance. So easy to lose track. So easy to get distracted. It's so easy to get pulled off sides. So easy to go crazy cycle. Forget why it exists. To forget mutual ministry. To forget collaboration. To forget partnership. To forget oneness. So this morning, if you're on the edge of forgetting or maybe you need a reminder, I'm going to ask you if you want to come forward and just recommit here. I I encourage you to do that. Or maybe you want to recommit to to being patient. Continue to allow God to, to, to build you and to show you things and so that when that decision comes to finding a partner, that you'll have clarity and wisdom. Whatever the case may be, maybe you're, again, like I said earlier, maybe your marriage is in trouble and nobody knows it but you. I beg you today, be honest with the Lord at least and allow Him to begin to soften your heart and give you meaning and purpose. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.